Hey there, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show for Friday, September the 18th. Coming up, David Shipley joins us with the information on how big that CRA cyber attack was this summer and what Huawei is proposing to convince Canada to use them in our 5G network. Hey, the world's whiskey of the year? It's Canadian, and we'll talk to its creator. But let's start off with a chat with our very good friend, Dr. Suman Chakrabarty. BC has unveiled this new COVID-19 test for kids, and we were hearing about it in the news at the top of the hour. This is a method. It's the first of its kind worldwide. It involves a, a mouth rinse. Can you tell us a little bit about how this works? Yeah, so this test, basically what it does is you get some salt water in your mouth, you kind of gargle it around a little bit, swish it in your mouth, and then you spit it into the container. You still have to go to the assessment center to do it. Uh, you know, there's a lot less risk, it's a lot less uh, uncomfortable because you're not getting that swab into your nose. But, uh, you know, you have to hand that in and you still need the lab to process it. But yes, it's much easier to, uh, to obtain. But what, what's the efficacy rate like compared to the nasopharyngeal swab test? Because remember when we had uh, some question about swabs that uh, weren't going far enough up the nose and, and so they might not be able to catch some of the virus that um, is, is being shed in early days of COVID-19. So you really needed that proper sized um, swab to me, you're not even getting to the back of the throat. How do we know this is going to work as well? So that's a really good point. That's, I think, what's, what we're concerned about, which is why we have to vet this before we bring this to Ontario. It looks like when they look at the initial study, it says, okay, it's about 98.6% sensitive, as we call it, uh, which, is, which is really good. But that was kind of in like the, the research setting. Uh, it looks like in some of the validation process, it might be less than that. It might not be, able to be sensitive enough to pick up all the cases and give you what we call false negatives. And for that reason, I think that's important. That that's one of the things behind the scenes that we don't think about very often, but it is limiting in this type of test. Right. And I guess one thing that they're leaning on in BC right now is it's extremely limiting if your kid doesn't want to have that swab up their nose. And so people are avoiding the test because uh, calling it a scarring experience may be a bit too much. But yeah, it's like a feeling I've never experienced before. And I'd like to avoid it a second time if I possibly can, because it's highly uncomfortable. Is that um, reason enough uh, to to bring in this this uh, you know they want to bring it into the masses this uh, gargle test uh, um, in order to test for uh, COVID nineteen the fact that we might be missing kids that could be spreading it. It, that's exactly right. We do have to balance things, right? Let's say if it is a little bit less sensitive, but you end up uh, capturing more children because you're doing it, you can get more people through the system, then I do think it's worth it. But we also, again, I always stress the behind the scenes stuff, like, you know, actually having a place to store these containers to actually make sure that you're able to get the information from that sa- uh, sample in the lab, having the people to actually process that. These things take a lot of resources in the background too. And we have to kind of keep that in mind because that's a big thing we're having right now with all these long lineups and the huge increase in um, demand for the testing. Yeah, Suman, it seemed like this happened overnight, the lineups at the testing site. So I started getting hearing about this uh, early in the week. And now it's just like you can't get a test uh, on the same day unless you are out there camping out like you're waiting for Zeppelin tickets back in the day in front of a Ticketmaster outlet. So what is going on at the labs? This is a huge problem right now. And I think it makes sense. You know, school has started. Lots of kids are getting runny noses, which, by the way, is probably not necessarily COVID. It could be other um, types of cold viruses. But also people are also, they're, they're um, worried. And uh, people are going in when they don't have symptoms. 
symptoms uh, in a situation where they don't have any high-risk exposures, no COVID app alert, just wanting to check. And then this is starting to cause a big stress on the system. And we really have to address this very soon because testing is one of our biggest weapons against COVID. And right now it is being strained to the limit and maybe a bit uh, overwhelmed as well. Yeah, the OMA are advocating for the province to roll things back where testing is concerned. They're saying, look, we should limit testing to people that are symptomatic um, because we are overwhelmed here. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Now, that doesn't mean that we're saying that, you know, people are going to be completely uh, taken off uh, uh, consideration. But what we need to do is prioritize those people who have symptoms of, uh, of COVID uh, or people who have had a high risk exposure. And there's some other exceptions as well, contact tracing investigation, because what's happening, a lot of people are coming, you know, I'm nervous. I have no risks, uh, but I just want to uh, get tested to make sure. Or I'm going to go to the cottage this weekend. I want to get tested just to make sure. There are a lot of these types of tests going on. They add a huge burden to the lab. And right now the lab is really struggling with, with the volume and we really need to optimize this if we're going to have a good response to the uh, increasing cases. But Suman, I mean, the question still remains, like, why is the lab struggling with the volume? Because, uh, you know, the message has always been, we want to have as many tests as possible. We're six months into this. So you would imagine that they would have ramped things up by now to be able to take on the added pressure. Where's the ball been dropped? I know that's quite a a loaded question for you, uh, because you're not in every lab every day. But Is there, were we just kidding ourselves? Was it almost impossible to up the capacity that our labs are at right now? I think from the beginning of the pandemic, the uh, amount of lab uh, uptick in the capacity was just remarkable. But I think what happened is at a time when there wasn't a lot of cases around, we had that capacity to be able to, look, we'll, we'll do some, a lot of extra testing to see uh, you know, what's going on, right? So that's part of the reason why we were able to see this rise in cases early on. But now that you know, the cases are increasing, the capacity is being uh, overrun. And the other thing to remember, it's not just the, the people that are in the lab, it's not just the machines that run this, it's also the actual materials, like the, the pipette tips, um, or the, the reagents that we use to make the chemical reactions to figure out if this is positive or negative, those are also limiting. And uh, that's, I think, part of the reason why we need to kind of change the message, uh, prioritize the, the symptomatics and the high-risk exposures, and then we can kind of uh, have a better um, situation as other things ramp up, because there is still some room to ramp up. It just takes some time. Suman, I was just mentioning that we're probably going to drop to three degrees tonight. It's getting chillier. There's no doubt about it. Uh, fall is in the air, and that means that yesterday our, our new stricter limits for social gatherings in the hotspots of COVID-19, like Brampton and Peel um, and in Toronto, to 10 inside um, is probably a smart thing to do, especially because we saw people kind of getting out of hand with, with private gatherings in Peel and in Toronto. But some experts are, are figuring that our social bubbles have burst. Were they actually unrealistic in the first place? And If so, how should we conduct ourselves? Because we are moving into the fall and winter here, um, not to mention a lot of holidays that people want to spend with their families and uh, loved ones. So what's your recommendation? Yeah, I mean, again, the, the basic principle is just keeping people spread out. And I think you're right that the social bubbles, they're difficult to maintain, but we don't have to be perfect about it. But one thing I want to think about is that the limit before, as uh, maintained by the government, was 50 people indoors. I don't know about your house, but if I had 50 people in my house, it would be crowded, right? So there could yeah. have been people who were having, they were, they were going by the rules. They had 50 people, just like the rules said, but that would be very difficult. That's probably what was leading to a lot of this. We might see a good decrease in the cases with just this minimal intervention. We'll know in a couple of weeks. 
Yeah, I, I, I've said this before, Sumana. I think that the messaging was flawed um, because I think it should have been uh, 50 with the masks on the whole time. And I just think that it should have been said in the same breath. And it was kind of an aside. Uh, with that, though, I mean, we could get into the ins and outs of communication problems with the government and COVID-19. But I think that's a totally different subject. And I know you're a busy man. So I want to thank you for your time today, Suman. Always great to be here. Thanks for having me. I want to invite on to the program David Shipley, who is our 640 Toronto expert on security as far as cybersecurity is concerned, to talk about a few stories that caught our eye. David, there's a lot to run through. Um, so thanks for sharing some time with us here. Thanks for having me. One of the things that I think is of paramount importance is that we're just learning uh, now that that CRA cyber attack um, that had everything shut down in August is a lot bigger than we initially heard it was. Initially, we heard that uh, 5,500 CRA account users had their personal information accessed, and that shut down the uh, website for um, a few days. But now we're hearing that suspicious activities um, are more than uh, four times as large as initially reported. So we're looking at 48,500 CRA user accounts that have been um, meddled with in some form. Can you tell us a little bit more about this story and why we should be concerned? Well, I mean, the first estimations, we're, we're now kind of seeing this pattern where whether it's Equifax, Desjardins, or CRA, the first estimates of how bad it is are always low-bulk. And so uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we don't go past 4,800 Canadians affected by this hack. And so just to recap, um, criminals, we don't know from where, um, whether they were international or domestic, um, used people's email addresses, uh, ID, and passwords from other data breaches, including probably Equifax, to brute force, that is just constantly try different combinations to get into these um, CRA accounts. And on top of that, they used a vulnerability that eliminated the normal challenge questions that may have slowed them down. And so they were able to access 48,000 accounts. We have no idea yet how much money they stole. We have not heard yet, but 48,000 times 2,000 gets kind of interesting over how many months, right? right. Uh, you know, just doing the quick math here, we're talking, uh, you know, almost $9.6 million per month that they could have stolen for however long they got, assuming they got all 48,000. So the big question for reporters is, where's the money? How much? And for Canadians, you know, once a government breaches your personal information at the tax level, you're pretty much identity hosed. Oh, really? Okay. So then what (laughs) happens if you're identity host? Because the CRA has said that they're going to work with individuals affected by identity theft or fraud to help ensure that they aren't liable for fraudulent cl- claims or, or payments made by fraud fraudsters using their account. Oh, it, 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 first of all, it's just going to be such a nightmare for Canadians who have their identity stolen because of this. Because, you know, first of all, they're going to have to prove that it was the CRA hack that, that got their identity stolen. And given there's been so many data breaches, there's reasonable doubt on that. And then they have to prove their damages. And, you know, sometimes it can take months and four to $5,000 worth of legal bills if a, if a criminal really takes your identity for, for, a, for a ride and gets a mortgage and a giant credit line, a whole bunch of credit cards, like it's, it's just unbearable stress. And in, in the midst of a pandemic, it's, 
it's extremely negligent and and it was completely avoidable. If they had set up things like two-factor authentication, this would never have happened. But how would the government be so naive as to not do something like that when giving away our money? Well, at the press conference, remember, they um, they said they, they knew about two-factor authentication, but they believed it'd be too inconvenient and make the service oh, too God. inaccessible, so they chose not to do it. And I think that's the important part the Canadians need to get upset about. It's, you know, none of these technology measures to prevent this attack are radical, complex technologies, but there are choices inside organizations every day to not do them. And then it's not the organization that pays the price, it's the Canadian citizen. Right. And so they're putting um, the mass at risk for the benefit of a few people that wouldn't be able to understand and work their way through that when you could have provided support for people that don't get it. Let's talk about this uh, scary story out of Germany. And uh, yeah, Germany is worlds away for most of us that are just trying to keep our stuff together with COVID-19 here at home. But German authorities are investigating a death of a patient following a ransomware attack in a hospital in Dusseldorf. Basically, this patient needed urgent medical care. And because everything was shut down because of a ransomware attack in her local hospital, she was transported 30 kilometers away and didn't make it. Yeah, this is the world's first recorded case of a death caused directly attributable to a uh, to a uh, ransomware attack. Now, the, the criminal gang says, when we were targeting Dusseldorf University, we didn't realize it was a hospital. Um, so it was the Dusseldorf University Hospital attached to that. Um, they, they crippled 30-some servers, and, and she had to take this 30-minute car ride, which she did not survive. Um, and, and what really this ups the stakes, right? This is, it's one thing to um, see what we saw in 2017 with 100,000 surgeries canceled in the UK because of a ransomware attack, but no directly attributable deaths. Now the German state's got a tough problem because is this a criminal matter or is this a national security matter that they need to take seriously? Right. And this this will, um, I guess, depending on how the Germans act, this could uh, set precedent for how all of us act when it comes to ransomware in the future. 100%. So so traditionally, the, the response has been, you know, cops and robbers chasing them around. But um, I can imagine that if this had gone down in the U.S., um, and it was a, a foreign group that hacked, there, there might be a predator drone hanging over their heads. Um, and, and that's the question. You know, what, what level are countries going to start escalating this beyond um, police action when the laws are inadequate, police can't get the criminals, and you know, people are, are dying because of this? Um, it's, a, it's a major escalation. Huawei Technologies, um, they really want Canada to adopt their 5G cellular networks. And we know this is a Chinese telecommunications giant that is trying to get into our network. Uh, Some people feel that their intentions are nefarious and we have reason to be suspicious. Our government hasn't really made up their mind on if they will allow Huawei in um, to the country to take part in our 5G cellular networks. But Huawei Technologies Canada has drafted a legal agreement that outlines that a a no backdoor and no spying plea um, as they try and and get the federal government to, you know, avoid banning them uh, from use in in our 5G network. Can you maybe elaborate on what they are proposing and should this make us more comfortable? 
Um, it's not worth the paper it's written on. Um, and and I'll, I'll you know sort of go back to the uh, British government set up a, uh, a review of the Huawei technology. And uh, about last year or the year before, they came back with a report that said there are so many um, horrible things about the Huawei code and how it was cobbled together that we don't know how many security flaws here are intentional or just negligent. Um, so that, that piece of paper is worth what it's written on. The Chinese government has their law that allows them to compel Huawei to spy for China's national interests. That's going to trump any contractual agreement in Canada. And, and really, like, here's our promissory note. Please install billions of dollars of worth of equipment. And, uh, oh, whoops, we violated it. What are you going to do? And, and, you know, in the United States, they're, uh, they're trying to pull out $1.8 billion worth of Huawei gear after the U.S. banned it. So... You know, our, our telecommunications companies are already signaling they're starting to move on because in absence of a decision, which I guess is a decision, they, they don't like the risk they're running and uh, they're starting to go to alternative providers. And, and then one other note for Canadians, uh, the Chinese government, and there's some great reporting in Global News has done um, sort of looking back on the Nortel story, the Chinese government destroyed Nortel uh, with cyber espionage that directly benefited Huawei. Rewarding Huawei with contracts in Canada is literally uh, adding insult to injury and the destruction of our what was once our greatest technology company. I have no idea why this is even still a discussion in Ottawa. Should people be worried if they bought one of those nice Huawei smartphones? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't do it, uh, mostly because it's an Android phone and trying to keep those phones patched and updated and secure. Uh, but I certainly wouldn't buy from a manufacturer that's got significant ties to the Chinese state. Um, so yes, they should be worried. Can we go full circle back to what we were talking about off the hop here? Um, so if the CRA are reporting their cyber attacks impacted four times as many accounts than previously believed, the one that shut everything down for a couple of days in August, um, could we uh, assume that it's possible that we have not been um, identified yet if we've been breached? And how would we know? Yeah. <laughs> How would we know is a great question. I mean, besides them um, mailing a letter to say, whoops, we lost your data. Um, and that assumes, by the way, here are some questions reporters haven't asked. Um, we now know that they've been able to quantify that the attackers were in a month earlier than what they first suspected, which is why the number increased. But how far back did their logs go? How far back were the criminals really in? Uh, the system. And we keep getting garbage sort of, we can't tell you these things because of security concerns. We need to treat this like an airplane accident where we completely open the black box here and tell Canadians everything went wrong so that other government departments can learn from it, our banks can learn from it, our universities can learn from it. But we are not getting the transparency to answer that question. And I'm going to highly suspect they don't have the data to, to definitively prove all the Canadians who probably were affected. Wow. Okay. Well, that's quite a statement to make and, and very, very worrying. David, I want to thank you for your time and um, have yourself a safe and happy weekend. You too. Stay safe and thanks for the opportunity. I love a good Canadian success story. And this one revolves around no whiskey. So Chris Creston should be interested in it as well, because right to his right every day, you might not know, but he sits next to a beverage cart that is full of tantalizing, tasty notes. And a couple of them happen to be some fine whiskeys. And I'm guessing that this year he's going to ask for me for one particular whiskey. And that whiskey that he is going to be asking me for happens to be 
from Alberta. It's Alberta Premium Cast Strength, produced by Calgary-based Alberta Distillers. It has been named the World Whiskey of the Year by a guy named Murray, who produces something called the Whiskey Bible. Now, if you would bear with me for a second, I actually have some information here about this Whiskey Bible. This Whiskey Bible, if you don't know, has been published since 2003. The 2021 edition contains notes on approximately 4,500 whiskeys. That means this guy had to sit down and taste these whiskeys. He had to decide which ones had the best notes and which ones from around the world um, deserved the distinction of being named the world's best whiskey. And of course, that brought us to Alberta. And here joining the program... All the way from Calgary, Alberta, George Tycrobe, General Manager of Alberta Distilleries. George, holy crow, can you believe it? You have the world's best whiskey. That's amazing. It's still hard to believe, but we're, we're enjoying the moment. Did you know that you were a contender? And did you have to actual, actually reach out to James and say, hey, hey, try this whiskey? We want it to be in the, the Bible, or did he find it on his own? Uh, he has been quite familiar with our site for many years. So, uh, no, he, he has n- uh, no problem finding our st- Okay. Uh, the whiskey, your whiskey, is special. It's made with 100% Alberta rye grain and water from the Rockies. Tell us a little bit about your uh, whiskey and what makes it the world whiskey of the year, in your opinion. Yeah, so it, you're absolutely correct. Yeah, we use uh, 100% Canadian grown rye grain. And one of the only distilleries uh, to to do a full scale 100% rye grain. It's a very difficult grain to to actually uh, put through this process. And uh, we've crafted it since 1946, and we consider ourselves to be expert in that field of rye grain uh, whiskey. So, um, aside from using 100% rye grain whiskey, we uh, we use special enzymes that we create here in house. And we, we go through an incredible uh, a fermentation stage. And, and once we run it through um, from our beer still, we actually go to a pot still. And uh, from the pot still, we actually put it into new white oak barrels. So it's a very unique process because Canadian laws allow you to use uh, reuse barrels as often as you want. But for this particular product, we reuse uh, brand new white oak barrels. And, uh, you know, that's where the magic starts to happen. And uh, many years later, um, you know, you put yourselves out there when you when you dump straight from or drain straight from the barrel and into a bottle. So uh, really that uncut uh, piece is really what makes this a very unique product. Oh, I have so many questions. Where to start? First of all, I'll start with the, the uh, one that, that you just raised there. Um, how long is it in that oak barrel? Well, for Canadian law, um, you have to have at least 36 months to be Canadian whiskey. Um, but we, we didn't put an age claim on because uh, we found a, a sweet spot there just a little over four years old. And when it's in new white, uh, new white oak charred barrels, uh, it gives it a very, very powerful um, uh, taste. And those notes that uh, come out of it, I think they were described as caramel, vanilla, and a hint of chocolate. Um, it, it's, it's just the new white oak ha- has a unique uniqueness um, to the flavor profile. Um, so, yeah, we a little over four years old. Okay, is there anything interesting that goes into like uh, the process of charring the barrel to get it ready for processing the whiskey and and aging that whiskey even farther? Yeah, the charring process is actually done out of a, a cooperage company out of uh, uh, 
Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, yeah, they they'll um, you know, when they char the barrel, they'll they'll burn it, and uh, they'll get to a depth, and the depth rating, um, you know, usually what we use for our products is usually a depth rating between uh, two, three, and a four level uh, char, and uh, you know that it's just it's an incredible process that that natural wood goes through because the wood in itself has uh, a lot of sugars in it, and uh, over the fermentation stage, the uh, you know, through the seasons, as the wood contracts and expands, um, it actually starts to release some of this. And, and that's where you get that uh, that natural, um, you know, pureness. And, and all the conagers that you have in the whiskey on day one start to interact with the, with the wood and the sugars that are released. And you just have an incredible product. Why process the barrels and, and char them in Louisville, Kentucky? Is it because whiskey originated south of the border, or have we been making whiskey just as long? What's what's the uh, thought process behind that, and why are the experts? Um, actually, I think it's just by by size that they're able to do, and, and there's not a lot of companies that actually have the facilities to actually create and char their wood. Um, and it's a it's a, a white oak, and it's predominantly used by uh, you know the the Midwest. So it's just probably a you know commodity based reasons why why they do it out of Kentucky and in our parent company uh, Beam Centauri um, a lot of distilleries in in the Kentucky area and uh, they source those barrels as well so we just piggyback off of that. You work with 100% uh, Canadian rye. Why is it difficult to work with? Because you mentioned that it is difficult to work with. What's so challenging about um, making the uh, whiskey from our rye? Well, rye grain um, ha- has a higher uh, protein content to it. And w- when you go through the uh, the mash cooking phase of it, um, if you don't have, um, you know, if you don't have the correct enzymes, what you get is actually uh, what, what I refer to in simple terms is you get excessive foaming. And it's really difficult to do that because the, it's got rye grain has a very complex sugar structure to it and and with that higher protein content it makes it very difficult to deal with so you really have to have a refined enzyme that you use through the mash cooking to be able to extract um and and maximize the yield content from this so it's it's our our lab and the and the wonderful technicians that work there that have created just an incredible uh process to allow us to be one of the few facilities and it's also on the on the extracts once you've had uh, extracted all the alcohol from it. It's the drying process that creates an issue too, and and uh, that, that's one of the the byproduct um, to have to deal with a rye grain is uh, is quite difficult as well. I heard the farther north you go in Canada, the spicier the uh, the rye will make your whiskey. Is that true? I don't know if it's north. Um, I've I've heard the same. Um, we we believe that it's something to do with the the elevation and, and being um, you know over thirty four hundred feet um, here in Calgary. It, it certainly adds to that. Um, the, I don't know that I've seen any uh, literature from a scientific view saying that the further north you go, uh, but certainly has something to do. We believe with the elevation and, and the maturation warehouses that you use as well. And, uh, you know, we don't have the same climate um, around the world. So, you know, we have to deal with a little bit of a, a colder winter sometime. Um, but, you know, the, the strictness that you have and how you control the temperatures in your warehouses has a lot to do with it as well. All right. We've got Chris Creston, our producer of the program. He is looking around already on the LCBO site because he wants to have the uh, whiskey of the year. So he said <laughs> that he's looking. And the LCBO here carries uh, quite a few of your Alberta distillers. Um, whiskey. So which one are we looking for? 
you're looking for the Alberta Premium Cast Strength, and it is a limited edition rye whiskey. And how quickly do you think that's going to sell out? Um, I believe it's already sold out. Chris, you're out of luck. <laughs> well, listen, congratulations <laughs> I, on your success. So does that mean that the next batch uh, will be the batch to keep our fingers crossed for, that we'll get some availability on it? I, no, you, you're exactly correct. I mean, it's one of those things when you do a cast strength, um, you know, it's, you, have to have, you have to believe in your process for that next, uh, that next run. And, and we're still talking about, it. I mean, this is an incredible, incredible, uh, uh, award that we received. And, uh, you know, we're, we're confident that we'll follow it up with something, uh, equal. Um, but you know, it's, it's, uh, we'll have to wait and see. I, I know there's a lot of internal discussions going on on what we do from here. Um, and, uh, I think it's all going to be exciting. All right, George. Well, I want to thank you for your time. We've run right up to our newscast, so I got to let you go. But have yourself a fantastic afternoon. Be hard not to when you're surrounded by all the uh, great whiskeys that you guys make. Thanks, Kelly. It was a pleasure. Cheers. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the podcast of The Kelly Cotrera Show. Don't forget, we broadcast weekdays from 9 till noon, Monday through Friday, on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.